Russian President Vladimir Putin called the U.S. dollar's drop in dominance, quote, objective and irreversible during the recent BRICS summit in South Africa, as Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa formally agreed to use local currencies instead of the U.S. dollar. It's the first shoe to drop. As demand for the dollar weakens, the buying power of the dollar also weakens. That's why Birch Gold Group is busier than ever. Investors and savers are looking to harness the power of physical gold held in a tax-sheltered IRA. Text MONICA to 989-898 for your free info kit on gold. Thousands of happy customers, an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau, and countless five-star reviews, you can count on Birch Gold to help you navigate transitioning an existing IRA or 401k into an IRA in gold. As the U.S. dollar continues to receive pressure from foreign countries, digital currency, and central banks, arm yourself with information on how to protect your savings. Just text MONICA to 989-898 to claim your free info kit from Birch Gold Group right now. Hey guys, I'm Monica Crowley, and this is the Monica Crowley Podcast. Thanks so much for joining me here on this Monday as we kick off a brand new week in Biden's America. Buckle up. This is your go-to for hot liberty, a safe space for all of us thought criminals, independent thinkers, and happy warriors. On social media, I am at Monica Crowley underscore on Instagram and on Twitter and True Social, I am at Monica Crowley. Also, yesterday I posted a little video, a little clip of my appearance on Tucker Carlson today. He and I had this very long, extensive conversation about my time with President Nixon and how the deep state never goes away. Deep State got Richard Nixon. Deep State is still active, trying to get Donald Trump and anybody who stands in their way. So it was an absolutely fascinating conversation. Again, I posted a clip up on Instagram that is at Monica Crowley underscore. So please go check it out and watch the entire thing on Fox Nation. Also, this week, I am going to be in Southern California at the Nixon Library for two events of tomorrow for the Nixon Seminar led by Secretary Pompeo and Ambassador O'Brien. It's going to be a fascinating conversation. It will be streamed live on YouTube. So go to nixonfoundation.org, and you should be able to see it streamed live. That's tomorrow night. And then Wednesday night, I'm giving a big speech at the Nixon Library, which I'm not entirely sure yet if it's going to be streamed live, but I'll let you guys know. Just follow me on social media and I will update you. Again, Twitter and True Social at Monica Crowley. So please check it out there. And if you're in Southern California, near your Belinda, near Anaheim, please come. You can register at nixonfoundation.org. It's a free event, but you do have to register. Okay, so please check it out. And if you find yourself in Southern California on Wednesday, please come see me. Would love to meet you. All right, big week this week, in addition to me being in California. On Wednesday on this show, we've got a major guest joining us 
I promise you, you will not want to miss Wednesday's show. It is going to be a blockbuster conversation, for real. This one is going to be one for the historical record, for sure. Okay, so you're definitely going to want to tune in on Wednesday. You should not be missing any Monica Crowley podcast, but Wednesday is is going to be a very important conversation. Today, I want to cover another bit of Biden idiocy from over the weekend, actually from Friday, but this bit of idiocy is far more dangerous than his usual wandering off aimlessly or looking for a dead member of Congress. I'm all over it. Sit tight for that. Plus today, an absolutely fascinating conversation with the brilliant Noah Rothman, who has written an incredibly smart, thoughtful book about the left's war on fun. Noah is really one of the smartest guys out there. So this is going to be an amazing conversation that's coming up today. And your emails with a very important message from me at the end of the show. We only have about five weeks until the midterms. So you're going to want to hear this message from me at the end of today's program. Okay. First up though, the Monica memo. Joe Biden has always been a hack and a jerk. Now he's a hack and a jerk with dementia. He's also a Manchurian president with somebody else pulling the strings, namely the Obamas and the entire Obama crew. But because Biden is not in control, there are so many crises and problems and issues that are all being manufactured on purpose to destroy the country. Last Friday, Biden was out there talking about Hurricane Ian, wandering away from the FEMA director who was trying to get his attention and keep him close, but no, he just wandered off. But he also made an attempt to applaud first responders, including the National Guard and the Coast Guard, which is great as far as it goes. I mean, that's bare minimum, right? He is the commander-in-chief. The bare minimum of any president should be thanking the National Guard, the U.S. military, the Coast Guard, when you have a natural disaster like this. But the bar is so low with Biden, guys, that we find ourselves applauding him like a child when he does the bare minimum. Oh, look at little Timmy ate his mac and cheese. It's like, oh, look at little Joe thanking the U.S. military. Well, again, bare minimum. But in trying to thank them, Biden also slapped them across the face. According to Breitbart over the weekend, on Friday, Biden personally called to thank a Coast Guard rescue swimmer because this swimmer for the Coast Guard was out there literally saving people's lives during the hurricane. The White House publicized the call. They put out a press release. Biden himself went out there and bragged about calling him. Biden said, quote, I told him how proud of him I was and thanked him for all of the work he and his coasties are doing to save lives. This was in a call he made to aviation survival technician, second class, Zach Loesch. The White House press release said that he thanked Loesch and Lieutenant Commander Christopher Hooper, quote, for the heroic work that they and their Coast Guard colleagues have performed during search and rescue operations in response to Hurricane Ian. The president thanked them for saving lives and asked for a report on the work that continues to rescue Floridians. 
He also asked if they needed any additional support. That, that, by the way, is a critical point. I want you to hold that in your head. He also asked if they needed any additional support that he can provide to accelerate successful rescues. They indicated that they have gotten what they need to execute their vital mission. That was the White House press release. That was their readout on the call. That's so nice, right? Again, bare minimum for any American president, but hey, that's great as far as it goes, right? Wrong. Listen to this. Despite Biden thanking Loesch for saving lives, Loesch himself is due to be kicked out of the Coast Guard in 30 to 60 days due to Biden's own ridiculous mandate that all members of the United States Armed Forces be fully vaccinated. Loesch told Breitbart that he had submitted a request for a religious accommodation as well as an appeal for this mandate, but both were denied. He said, quote, if I had asked any of the people I saved yesterday, if they wanted to come with me, even though I am unvaccinated, every single one of them would have said yes. Loesch personally pulled out a disabled woman and her husband who were trapped in their back bedroom with a couch jammed in the doorway thanks to the flooding. He kicked through a wall in order to free them. But wait, it gets better. Once he freed them, Loesch went back to retrieve her wheelchair, securing it to his own body as he was hoisted up by a Coast Guard helicopter. Loesch also rescued several dogs and cats. Loesch said he didn't want to bring up his pending discharge to Biden, obviously his commander-in-chief, and ruin the call. See, this guy, Loesch, has class and Biden has none. That's why Loesch did not bring it up to Biden in the call. I would have, (laughs) but Loesch has apparently too much class to do that. He's on the phone with his commander-in-chief, president of the United States. He did not want to raise it, but he did speak to Breitbart over the weekend, and I thank Breitbart for reporting this. Loesch went on to say, quote, it just sucks that he thanked me, yet the vaccine mandate is what's kicking me out. He went on to say, I just love my job and I'm really good at it. It sucks. I feel like this is the job that I was born to do. We have an all-volunteer force, people, okay? All-volunteer. Anybody who steps up and looks at the United States military and says, got to sacrifice my entire life, could get killed, and very low pay. Yeah, sign me up for that. I want a piece of that. Anybody who does that is an American hero. And this is how this commander-in-chief and his entire administration treats American heroes. People who stand up, volunteer their lives to defend and protect the United States of America, the American people, and in crises situations like this, step up to save lives. And this is how Biden treats them. This is morally despicable, and it's also very dangerous. Very dangerous. We are hemorrhaging people from the military because of this stupid vaccine mandate. And on top of it, we've got a massive recruitment crisis. On Friday, the U.S. Army confirmed that it fell about 15,000 soldiers or 25% short of its recruitment goal this year. 
despite a frantic effort to make up the widely expected gap in a year when all of the military services struggled in a tight jobs market to find young people willing and fit to enlist. So they're already struggling to recruit people to join the U.S. military. Yes, a lot of this is obesity. We tend to be a very fat country, so a lot of people who might want to join can't because physically they're not up to it. But between the insane wokeness of the military, led by the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark, I want to understand white rage, Millie, and these disgusting mandates, decent young people are like, why should I join? Why should I join? Why should I sacrifice so much only to be crushed by mandates and woke bullshit? And you know what? I don't blame them one bit. I really don't. But we are going to have to fix this because if we don't, we are going to lose a major war. All of these mandates, said it before, I'll say it again. It's only and always about power and control for them over you. The imposition of this insane vaccine mandate for the military, where we're kicking people out, volunteers, somebody volunteers to do something, and we're like, no, you're not good enough because you won't put an experimental gene therapy in your arm. Come on. And the reimposition of things like mask mandates, you know it's all coming back. If we don't send a huge signal in five weeks during the midterms, all of these Democrats, even the ones that win by just a little bit, they are going to be so drunk on power, they're going to bring all of this stuff back. And this military mandate is just one little piece of it. It's a dangerous piece, but it's one piece. Things like mask mandates, etc. You know, it might seem like a relatively minor thing now that we're on the tail end of COVID, but it is a lever that they use to prod you back into compliance. Just last week on Twitter, there was a hashtag that was trending again, bring masks back. I'm not kidding. It was trending on Twitter. There are insane people out there. Most of them are in positions of some authority, and they will use it to prod you back into compliance, to prod the sheep back into the pen. Oh, you had a little freedom now that COVID has basically gone away. Well, uh, think twice, because all of this is about conditioning you to ask how high when the ruling class says jump. That's what all of this is about. That's what it's always been about. Masks never worked. The shots are the shots. We're getting all of this data now about how they weren't really safe and they weren't really effective. And you're going to get more truth coming out over time. That's what all of this has been about, power and control. In fact, they don't care if you live or die. In fact, to them, it's better if you're dead. No carbon footprint if you're dead. Power and control. That's it. And that's why I have said this over and over again. We need a COVID accountability project to investigate and prosecute and convict the pandemic criminals. Fauci, Burks, Collins, Redfield, Walensky, anybody in the Biden administration going along with this insane military mandate, Bill Gates, and so on, the entire corrupt lot. We will not forget about this and we will not forgive. There will be no moving on from this until there is accountability. 
Too many lives have been lost and destroyed. Too many livelihoods destroyed. This poor man in the U.S. Coast Guard, Loesch, being kicked out of the military after he was lauded by his commander-in-chief the other day? Come on! It's all insane, but not if you're the tyrant in charge. If you're the tyrant in charge, you want this to keep going forever. And you will discharge this hero, Loesch, after you just fitted him with a White House press release, because none of it makes any sense unless you understand that this is all about power and control, and this is all about their experiment in tyranny. Well, we the people say no, no more, and you will pay. All right, when we come back, we're going to talk to the great, super smart Noah Rothman, who's written a brilliant new book. This is going to be one of the smartest conversations I think that you will ever hear. And very important one, too. So sit tight. Okay, everybody, listen up. We all want to be healthier, right? Well, to get there, we have to have a healthier diet, which is not always easy to do. I can attest to that. You know, that shredded lettuce in a double-double and the fruit filling in a donut are amazing, but they do not count toward the recommended five servings of fruits and vegetables a day. Sorry to be the one to break it to you, but they don't. I don't always eat healthy either, but I will share that the Mayo Clinic says if you want to help prevent heart disease, lower blood pressure, and cholesterol, Eat five servings of fruits and vegetables every day. I don't, and you probably won't. That's why I take Field of Greens. Unlike other supplements, each fruit and each vegetable in Field of Greens was medically selected by doctors to support your vital organs, like the heart, lungs, kidneys, and the immune system. Flu season is here, and I trust Field of Greens to help me stay healthy. Field of Greens works fast and tastes so good. It's really delicious, guys, and you'll feel better with more energy, and you'll notice your skin, hair, and nails will look healthier, too. I certainly noticed that in me since I started taking Field of Greens. If you don't always eat right and exercise, join me and take Field of Greens. Let me get you started with 15% off your first order. Visit fieldofgreens.com and use promo code MONICA. That's promo code MONICA at fieldofgreens.com, fieldofgreens.com. Well, I am really delighted to welcome to the show someone I've admired for quite a long time and whom I read regularly because he is just so smart and insightful and his work is extraordinary. Noah Rothman is an editor at Commentary, and he's also the author of a really important and fun new book called The Rise of the New Puritans, Fighting Back Against Progressives' War on Fun. And he joins me now. Hi, Noah. Hi, Monica. Good to see you and talk to you. And thank you very much for that generous introduction. The admiration is mutual. Well, I appreciate that, Noah. And you are just the best. And you put out some of the smartest, most insightful work out there. So everybody should be checking out your work on commentary. But everybody should be getting this book because it's a very, very wise look at where we are in our society 
And of course, everything rolls down the hill from culture, so including politics. And people kind of forget that because politics is such a leading edge of things. And you have really gotten to the nugget and really gotten to the core of where we are in our society and culture. Again, the book is called The Rise of the New Puritans. So let's start sort of at the beginning here, because as I've been going through this book, Noah, it struck me that we've really come a long way in terms of when we look at the left and how they are driving our culture. It used to be that those on the left were the breezy, let it all hang out, live out of a VW bug or a VW van, live and let live, get muddy in Woodstock. And now they are the fascist, censorious, petty little tyrants policing every part of American life. So how do we get here? Exactly as you describe it, sort of emerging out of the sexual revolution was an ethos that conquered left-wing thought, left-wing liberal thought, uh, that emphasized fulfillment, self-gratification, even hedonism. And the mentality, by contrast, a mentality that saw impropriety and seemingly innocent cultural fare that had the capacity to corrupt you and society broadly was more a tendency that we associated with the right. And there's been a profound role reversal over the last half a decade, decade. Now we see moral crusades coming from the left, the commanding heights of American culture, entertainment companies introducing pledging to introduce didactic narratives that advance a social purpose that is grander than mere entertainment. Comedians who emphasize the pain that somebody somewhere had to endure so that you could enjoy something as trite as a punchline. Sports coverage that shoehorns digressions about uh, the lamentable state of American race relations into the coverage. And when fans object, as they often do, they're explicitly admonished for trying to cling to their need for an escapism over their duty, their moral duty to dwell on the world's ills at all time and in all things. And this mystery I attempt to solve by teasing out the threads that connect progressivism, modern progressivism, the progressivism of the 19th century, and the Puritanism that informed progressivism when it's the area of its birth in mainline Protestant New England. I maintain that as liberals identify less with liberalism and more with progressivism, they've adopted its mental gestures, its habits of mind, among them utopianism, anxiety over banal pastimes and a hatred of anxiety, a hatred of idleness and anxiety over idleness, because that which is idle is not actively promoting the grand work of our time. This is accompanied by displays of self-deprivation and profound discomfort, and it's total insofar as it is not a private practice. It aims to draft you into it. So my mission here is to uh, reconnect progressives with their Puritan roots. They may not see that they have Puritanism in their DNA, as we all do. We are all the inheritors of this legacy. But that's their problem. My aim is to try to fix that. When you say Puritanism, people tend to think of that as a moral code, right? The way you live your life as hyper-conservative and hyper-discreet and all of the things that go along with that. They tend not to think of Puritanism as a political agenda or political diktats in any way. And yet the left has taken hold of that to impose not just a cultural sensibility, but a political and ideological one as well. Right. So we are treated now to, for example, moral panics and outrages over uh, youthful indiscretions that involve racial frustration, racial anxiety. For example, one uh, proprietor of a of a grocer, a grocery in um, 
Minnesota, who had his lease terminated because his daughter had uh, engaged in youthful indiscretions online using very provocative racial slurs online. But he was the subject of punishment because he had sinned. His crime was the careless parentage of a willful daughter. We see imposition of standards on uh, food producers. You know, grand historic import is imposed on your burrito. Uh, world historic, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, uh, uh, this sort of uh, inflating the importance of this thing and finding in it that which only the truly initiated can see because they have this decoder ring that allows them to peel back the curtain in the world and see its hideous hidden workings. This is a, a mania, but it's informed by a moral theory, a theory of social organization that does not allow for the distinctions between private and public spaces, because to countenance such a thing is to countenance sin, is to countenance violation of the social compact that we should be working at all times and in all things to extirpate. There's a moral theory here at work that has in the abstract virtues, which is why I organized the book. Each chapter is organized by a series of unimpeachable virtues, piety, mm -hmm. prudence, austerity, temperance, order, and the fear of God. It's in the practice of this, of this new moral code that we see excesses and frankly is robbing people who would otherwise be predisposed to support this movement of the love they have for their life's work. They don't get to perform their life's work anymore. If they're, in, if they're creators of cultural products, they have to get up every morning and do politics. And a lot of them are just simply opting out because life is being robbed of its enjoyment. It's really so fascinating because the original Puritans were all about, again, it, it was conduct in your private life but a moral code, and it was geared towards saving your soul. And then they would exercise judgment on other people if they departed from that moral code, hence the scarlet letter, right? If someone right. committed adultery, they were plastered with a scarlet letter and roundly condemned. And now you have it on the left in service. First of all, it's, it's very public, but it's also in service of an ideological goal. So rather than saving one's soul, it's about moving America and the West toward a neo-communist kind of model. So it's more ideological and political than it is moral and spiritual. It's a secular kind of religious movement, right? It's a secular religious movement that mimics a secular religion. And many have made that observation. I depart slightly from some of the scholars whom I respect greatly who say that this is essentially a secular religion because I, I maintain that it, it doesn't have the aspects of a religion that would traditionally accompany, at least in the Western tradition, a deism that allows you absolution for your sins. There is no escape for your sins. So it transcends the conduct of politics. It transcends religion. It is something of a way of life. It's a modus vivendi. And that's what I essentially say that, you know, to try to explain why you're seeing what you're seeing, that this is a theory of social organization, much like Big P Puritans. Big P, you know, the Puritans of the 1600s, 1700s get kind of a bad rap. They weren't really as puritanical as we believe them to be in the popular imagination. What we think of when we think of puritanical stereotypes is really kind of the Comstockery that evolved and emerged in the 19th century. And that we see quite a lot of that today in forms of propriety that are imposed on society broadly and at anxiety, an unhealthy anxiety about seemingly banal social uh, and cultural conditions that are being transformed and transmuted into something that they're simply not. It requires you to be steeped in this ideology in order for you to see the horrors lurking just underneath the placid surface of activities like knitting, gardening, fly fishing, things that otherwise you, know, you wouldn't think of as having this, this corrupting influence on them. But if you're steeped in this ideology, then you 
have the capacity to see how America's sins of its birth have infected every aspect, every institution in this country, much including its, its banal pastimes, that which is America in origin, is America in all things, including the sins of its birth. And they've imposed that on just about every walk of life to a degree that is very psychologically unhealthy, is making them miserable, is making the people around them miserable. And it's my hope that this book provides some antidotes for that and gives you license to laugh at the way these people are behaving. They're making spectacles of themselves. If they weren't so intimidating, they'd be hilarious. I, I, and if they weren't in such control and and really controlled every lever of American power, society and life, therefore have the power and control to dictate to the rest of us. I want to get into comedy in, in a second, Noah, because you're really on point on that aspect of it in this book. And again, the book is called The Rise of the New Puritans. We're talking to Noah Rothman. Was there a particular moment or a precipitating event, Noah, that set the level off in this insane and dictatorial direction? So I don't identify a start date. I find that to be kind of a subjective exercise, but the best work in that way was done by uh, John Haight and Greg Luganoff in Coddling of the American Mind. They identify in and around 2013, this tendency among college students primarily, a tendency to see in uh, nonconformity menace, a tendency to see in speech that was challenging violence. And this tendency migrated off campus and subsequently managed to take over quite a few institutions that were, again, beholden to this point of view. They were theoretically supportive of this safetyism and this very morally minded progressivism, a remoralization of society and Gertrude Himmelfarb's conceptualization of it. And it's a spectacular act of piracy on their part because they were given the language, provided the language that they've subsequently used as a weapon to morally blackmail their elders and superiors and capture these institutions. But if there is an inception date, it's probably in and around that time. Very, very interesting. That, that's a really interesting insight. I, I was thinking maybe it goes back further because it's all in service of a bigger goal, which is what Obama used to call the fundamental transformation of the nation away yeah. from constitutional freedoms, individual liberty, economic liberty, and toward a more collectivist kind of model. So they've weaponized all of this in order to impose this kind of conformity to get to the ultimate end. What's really fascinating to me, too, and this is a related point, Noah, is that there has been a 180 degree turn on the left on issues of war and peace, where the left went from being anti-war sit-in protesters to pro-war military industrial complex cheerleaders. And that's been also something incredible to behold. So now you've got these nanny state buzzkill Karens, and it looks like we're all suffocating under the weight of this. Do they still have more to go? I mean, I saw the other day a story where now they're going after ballet because they believe ballet is an act of white supremacy and aggression. So now they're attacking ballet as a cultural art form. That's a perfect example of what we're talking about. It is the idea that cultural fair that does not explicitly and plottingly without subtlety, because you can't be trusted with subtlety, guide you in the direction of a moral, a contemporary political value actively detracts from the wholesome society. This is as puritanical as it gets. Big P Puritans, big P Puritans 
despised art for art's sake, beauty for art's sake, because it was idle. Idle, idleness is the greatest of sins. That which it earned exemption from these prescriptions were things like portraiture, headstone making, furniture craftsmanship, the sort of stuff that was the work of a craftsman, A, and B, a work for posterity. It had value because it was communicating our contemporary conditions to future generations. So it was not idle. All other art did not get that dispensation. And we see that a similar vein emerging from the modern new puritanical left that imposes modern values, current contemporary conditions on works of art in a plotting way, in a way that is just really kind of ham-fisted. Because you can't be trusted with subtlety, you have to be guided to the proper message. There's an element of condescension here. And maybe if we get into comedy, that's probably where it's most evident that the new Puritan doesn't trust you, doesn't believe that you have the mental fortitude and moral grounding to be able to take the right lessons away from cultural affairs. So those lessons have you have to be beaten over the head with those lessons, which results in stilted art that is not satisfying. But satisfying is not the goal. It shouldn't be the goal. The goal is to advance the progressive project at all times and in all things. Yes, 1000%. And it's about channeling people. It's about control. So it's not just, I think, no, it's not just a lack of trust that you won't get to the end point they want you to get to, but it's also channeling people to get by force, by coercion, by thought control and narrative control to get you to that. But there's also an element of destroying Western civilization as well. So the removal of the Churchill bus, the removal of the Lincoln bus at Cornell, or the war on ballet, which I just mentioned, but also that environmentalist that tried to destroy the Mona Lisa a couple of weeks ago. This is about destroying, tearing down the very foundations, the very pillars of Western civilization and channeling you into a whole new neo-communist, neo-Marxist kind of mindset. Noah, this is one of the smartest segments that I have ever done, and I have so much more I want to talk to you about, so please stand by. But first, guys, listen up. With the Consumer Price Index going up yet again, the stock market has been very volatile. What's our illustrious leader doing to quell the surge of inflation that's destroying all of us and and every American family? Oh yeah, he's spending more and adding to the inflationary burden. Don't bury your head in the sand while your savings gets decimated. Do something about it. Text Monica to 989-898 and Birch Gold Group will send you a free info kit on protecting your savings with gold in a tax-sheltered account. These are great people with almost 20 years experience converting IRAs and 401ks into precious metals IRAs. So don't allow the left to devalue your savings. Text Monica to 989-898 and claim your free, no-obligation info kit from Birch Gold. Again, you can own physical gold and silver in a tax-sheltered retirement account, and Birch Gold will help you do it. Birch Gold has an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau, countless five-star reviews, and thousands of satisfied customers. So check them out right now. Text Monica to 989 898 and secure your future with gold. Do it today. We'll be right back with more from Noah Rothman. Okay, we're back with Noah Rothman and his brilliant new book, The Rise of the New Puritans. 
Let's talk a little bit about comedy because laughter is so critical to a healthy psyche and a healthy society. And yet they, as you write so extensively, they have waged this anti-freedom, anti-fun tyranny on all of us. And every once in a while, you'll see someone like a Dave Chappelle stand up to it. Uh, he got an Emmy nomination, I think, for one of his recent specials, which, of course, set the left off all over again. So talk about the war on comedy and why it's so critical for the left to wage the war on laughter. Right. So first to this element of condescension that you see from the puritanically inclined progressive. There's a gentleman by the name of Seth Simons wrote a very influential essay two years ago about the influence of right wing comedy, which he identified and described as a banal form of stand up that was popular in the early 2000s, colloquially called cringe comedy. And it leveraged unspeakable things for humor values, sexism, racism, violence, homophobia, discrimination broadly. Now, that description of dark humor might make you think that anybody who enjoys that joke, much less tells that joke, is probably a terrible human being. But this is the essence of dark humor, to plumb the depths of despair in the human experience for laughter, to laugh your way up the gallows steps, which makes unendurable conditions a little bit more endurable. So Simons identifies in cringe humor, this the, the origins of the alt-right and draws a straight line from the early 2000s to the sacking of the Capitol building, this black swan event that somehow has its origins in comedy. Now, he doesn't think that any of the comedians acting out their antisocial behaviors on stage will actually perform these unspeakable acts in society. But you might. We're not, we don't know about you. You could be a ticking time bomb. So that must be prescribed or adulterated for the benefit of a wholesome society. Couple this with an impulse on the puritanically inclined left to emphasize humor that's not funny, deliberately, legitimately, explicitly not <laughs> right. funny. Explicitly. Right. They talk about, um, I identify just one individual that they admire greatly, the anti-comic, the Australian anti-comic Hannah Gadsby, who is funny when she wants to be, but isn't always. Sometimes she won't allow you a laugh after she builds the tension that would traditionally lead to a punchline. She'll marinate in the pain that she experienced and force you to do that, too. She'll circle back to a punchline that she told five minutes ago and force you to interrogate your sense of humor. Why did you think my abuse was funny? Is that really funny? What does that say about you? This is the stuff that enlivens the puritanically inclined progressive left. They talk about how marvelous it is when she's not funny, when she's trying to be unfunny and to provide you with pain. They describe it as an attack, as an assault, as an interrogation, not as humor value, because it would be flip to talk about America's social conditions in a manner as trite as being funny. And this is directly linked to what we used to see as a, a puritanical impulse on the right. Comics like George Carlin and Lenny Bruce and Richard Pryor were all targeted by this impulse that believed anything less than morosity than being just beset by the conditions in society, much less to mishandle them as carelessly and as flippantly as a comic would, is an assault on the wholesome society. It is a value that we should discourage. The tables have since turned in ways that I don't think even progressives would be willing to recognize in themselves, which is why I hope this book, in an irreverent fashion, guides them to the understanding that is provided by a long look in a mirror. Yeah, you know, it, it's such a great point about laughter and levity and 
you mentioned those famous comics from the 60s and the 70s really pushed the envelope. That's what art is supposed to do. It's not supposed to make you comfortable. It's supposed to make you uncomfortable by revealing truths and realities that polite society is not really permitted in public discussion. But you go and listen to a comic, push the envelope like that. You're supposed to expose it and laugh at it. And that's how you disarm it. That's how you take the power away from some of this uh, stuff that might be toxic to a society. And without that, all you have, Noah, is the toxicity. So that's an excellent point. One I, I wish I had made more thoroughly in the manuscript, that they enjoy the discomfort. The discomfort they find fulfilling. It is the disarming that's the problem. They don't want this disarmed. They want it armed. They like the force, the moral force, the power of emotional manipulation and blackmail that steeping yourselves in these issues and presenting yourself as being the most sober and serious person in the room provides you. This is the, It gives you a sense of self-satisfaction to think of yourself as having this seriousness of purpose and of being so resolute in your mission, the remaking of the world anew, that you would sacrifice these trite pleasures, that you would deprive yourself of these satisfactory impulses. You know, your body betrays you when you laugh, when you hear a, a ribald joke and you a gut laugh burst from your body. That is an exercise that is ungoverned by the intellect, which might render you frighteningly ungovernable. This is a direct correlation with the kind of puritanical impulses that we saw in the 1600s, eventually in the 1900s. And today, the idea that you can't be trusted with your instincts, with your impulses, is very familiar to anybody who perceives themselves to be a social engineer, a social reformer. And we're all, again, the inheritors of this puritanical legacy, social reformers more than most. And because social reformers are primarily to be found on the progressive left these days, they are exhibiting these traits in ways that are impossible to ignore. Yeah, no, it's such a good point. And, you know, it's also toxic because everything has become so politicized that you can't watch a football game without politics in your face or you can't go shopping for a new dress without politics in your face. But you do in this book, you do lay out a blueprint for fighting back. So it, it does have some optimism in here in trying to at least challenge this new orthodoxy. So how do we go about doing that? Well, a couple of ways. First of all, the idea here is that you should lead a carefree, joyous life insofar as it's possible. And the way that we achieve that is to reconceptualize politics as politics. What we're talking about are things that are political. They have thematic elements that are tangentially political, but they're not amenable to legislative remedy. They don't have anything to do with legislative affairs or electoral outcomes. So they're not politics properly understood. And when the social reformer becomes completely convinced of the absolute moral urgency of this or the other social phenomenon that cannot be resolved by politics properly understood. You have this fatalistic conceit that renders you either dejected and resolved to withdraw from the political scene because it's just so unresponsive to what you think are your absolute moral imperatives, or you radicalize and resolve to attack the foundations of these holy and moral institutions that are unresponsive to the absolute moral imperative that you're convinced of. And there are also, I think, commercial pressures that will come to bear to dismantle a censorious philosophy that's bound up, I think, in the phrase banned in Boston. So in the 19th century, banned in Boston described warnings against impure literature. You know, you had societies for the suppression of vice that organized themselves in opposition to profoundly subversive works of literature like Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass. And it was very successful in mainline Protestant New England up into the 20th century even. 
Books were banned. Plays were bottlerized. You couldn't get the popular song on the radio, wouldn't be played in Boston, that sort of thing. And eventually this evolved from a warning against impure literature to a powerful advertisement for it. Publishers actively sought to have their works banned in Boston because it would increase sales around the rest of the country. And I think if there's a modern equivalent, it's banned on Facebook, banned on Amazon. When you see conservative books, and they are reliably conservative books that are targeted by these censors who don't know what they're doing, the popularity of these titles explodes well beyond the capacity of any PR campaign to engineer. They have organic weight behind them because this banning has become a powerful advertisement for whatever this the subversive work of the week happens to be. So I also conclude, you know, a little sardonically that I hope somebody cancels this book because everybody will win. <laughs> yeah, no, that's exactly right. And uh, look, it, this book goes a long way. This is a Herculean task in front of us to try to turn this around because it's become so deeply entrenched for decades. And certainly as you kind of pinpoint to 2013, then they put it on steroids. But we've got to start somewhere. And this book goes a long way to getting us there. And obviously, you've given this a lot of thought, Noah, and this book is so thoughtful and smart and important. Again, it's called The Rise of the New Puritans, Fighting Back Against the Progressives' War on Fun. The author again, Noah Rothman. I highly recommend this book. It's, as you can hear from Noah, it's a smart explanation of what we're all experiencing and how to fight back. So go get it, everybody. And Noah, I want to thank you so much for being here today and congratulations. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me, Monica. You bet. Okay, guys, time now for the Monday email bag. Lon in Las Vegas writes, Monica, as always, love your podcast. Talk about what our useless lawmakers are going to do about stopping the giving away of our sovereignty by this illegitimate, demented old man. How could he be making these decisions when he was put in the office of the president illegally? Well, Lon, thank you for the email, first of all. Secondly, that is a very big question. We have spoken recently about Steve Bannon's comments after his rigged trial a couple of weeks ago, remember? When Bannon said that the entire world knows that Biden is illegitimate, which is why world leaders don't return his calls and they blow him off and nobody takes him seriously. But His election was certified, which is what Trump was trying to stop, but the train had already left the station, and unfortunately, it wasn't stopped. And now the rest of us are saddled with this illegitimate president driving the country straight into the ground. This is a very, very critical message, guys. I want you to listen closely because we're only about five weeks away from the midterm elections. We have to vote in droves If your state is already voting, make sure that you've, I prefer to vote in person. I am going to vote in person. I actually want to see that vote go through all of this mail-in voting. God knows we've seen enough fraud and shenanigans in 2020. I prefer to vote in person. If you can't, understood, use an absentee ballot, but in whatever way you can, make sure that you get out and vote. We've got to do it in droves, obviously. Volunteer at the local level. Your time or resources or expertise to monitor these elections where you live is critical. So at the bare minimum, we can get a GOP Congress in place to stop the damage. 
at least at the legislative level. You know, Biden can still do a lot of damage with executive orders, but in order to spend and tax and so on, he's got to go through Congress, and that's where we can stop him. Then our attention must turn to 2024, and it will, literally the day after the election in November. But we also have to get engaged in the culture. I talk about this all the time on this show. We've got to support alternative cultural products like films, documentaries, books, TV shows, all of the things that I promote on the show when I have great guests like Kurt Cameron or Kathy Lee Gifford, Nora Rothman today with his fantastic book. You've got to support these things. The My Son Hunter movie that we had on the show a couple of weeks back, all of the things that we talk about, but all of the other things that you see out there in the culture that should be supported, do it. Because we've got to send a signal that there is money to be made with conservative-oriented entertainment. Vote with your dollars. We are starting to see a turn in the culture just a little bit, but there's been a shift because the left overreached as it always does. Communists always overshoot. The drag shows for children, the trans agenda, biological boys competing against biological girls, boys and girls restrooms, CRT in schools, Marxist indoctrination everywhere. So the left has overreached and now there's a bit of a backlash Just take a look at how huge the Top Gun Maverick movie did. We talked about it on the show over the summer. Huge, huge movie. Massive blockbuster. Why? Because people are parched for that kind of entertainment where they're not being harangued, lectured, or burned with some big social justice message. They just want to be entertained. So there is a bit of a backlash here. And all this woke nonsense is is failing or at least not succeeding the way Hollywood and and the left wants this stuff to succeed. It's not. So there is a bit of a backlash going on here. Nothing is going to change the culture tomorrow, but there has been a change, and that gives us hope. So politics matters, obviously, okay? But arguably, the culture matters more. So we must focus on both lawn and everybody else in order to bring this country back. That's my very important message of today, along with all my other important messages. Thank you very much for the email, Lon. If you want to let me know what's on your mind, send me an email to Monica Crowley podcast at gmail.com, Monica Crowley podcast at gmail.com, and I might read yours on the air. Okay, that's going to do it for me today. Thank you so much for joining me, as always, and for checking out our tremendous sponsors. We all really appreciate that. Have a great start to your week. I will see you right back here with a huge show on Wednesday. Also, I will be in Southern California at the Nixon Library on Wednesday. So if you're there, go to nixonfoundation.org. Check it out. Register. It's a free event. So if you want to see me speak and say hi, go to nixonfoundation.org and find my event and register there. Okay? All right. I will see you right back here on Wednesday. Be well. Be well.